The sermon title is Three Quick Questions. I'm going to propose to you this morning three questions to help you walk along the journey of discipleship as you pursue Jesus. We've been working on discipleship this year, and I believe these three questions are ones that we should ask in order to following after Jesus. If you read the New Testament, which all of you have, but you read it with the lens of look at the questions that are asked from people to Jesus, and then also the questions from Jesus to those who are following him. And you see a lot of this interaction. Even sometimes Jesus, in receiving a question, responded with a question of his own. He says, I'll tell you what, if you, if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. So they just swapped questions back and forth. Sometimes Jesus was asked questions like, what can I do to inherit eternal life? That's a question that you should consider if you haven't done it. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Sometimes they saw Jesus forgive sins as he healed people. And they said, who is this who even forgives sins? And in that instance, that question, Jesus proclaimed that he was God. Who can forgive sins but God himself? A couple of questions the disciples asked Jesus. When Jesus talked to a rich man and, uh, about inheriting eternal life and and they wondered in, after his response, then, who then can be saved, Jesus? Who will do this? They also asked, two of them one day, as they were walking along with Jesus, considering what heaven might be like, they said, Jesus, can me and my brother have the seats of honor with you? Can, we, can, can I sit at your right hand and my brother at your left? So Jesus was open to questions being asked to him. So I would encourage you this morning to ask questions to Jesus to guide you on the faith. And I'm going to give you three to think about this morning based on several passages of Scripture. The first is this question. Jesus, what does this teaching mean? Help me understand, right? Do any of you have to ask that question in your life as you read Scripture? <laughs> what does this teaching mean? This is not rhetorical. You can respond with something. Okay, great. All right, you're with me. All right. What does this teaching mean? It may be the question that we have to ask most frequently because you've been encouraged to read the Bible as part of being a disciple of Jesus, to listen to his words so that you can follow him. Throughout this year, we've said, engage the word of God. We should be asking Jesus to help us understand. I read a proverb recently which stated this, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. I'm thinking, what? That's not an expression that we use very oftenly here in this culture. Oh, like a gold ring and a pig's snout. Well, I had to ask this question. Jesus, what does this mean? What does this mean? If we look at the New Testament, we focus in on Jesus' teachings. We discover one of his primary methods was the parable. A parable is a story with two levels of meaning where certain elements in the story represent something else. Looking at this parable in Mark 4, we're going to get the disciples asking questions, but here's the parable that they asked and, and asked Jesus to interpret. It was a parable of the a sower and the soils, right? We know this parable. There was uh, numerous places where the seed that the, that the farmer was sowing the seeds could fall. It could fall upon the path, right? If it fell on the path, then the birds would come and eat it up. It fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but then it, it was eliminated because of the sun. No depth, no roots, thorns, and then good soil. And then in verse 9, Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples had to learn how to examine Jesus' teachings. Now, these were not educated men. Right? These were fishermen. They were tax collectors. 
They were not like Paul, who sat with Gamaliel and got an instruction through and perhaps understood the parable. They had to ask Jesus, what does this mean? Look at verse 10. When he was alone, Jesus was alone. This is the disciples saving a little bit of face, right? They just stood by Jesus and they kind of nodded their heads when he was teaching. Imagine it, right? Then he got off into a private room and he said, oh, by the way, Jesus, the 12 and the others around him, what did that parable, what did it mean? They asked him about the parables. Why did Jesus teach in parables? Do you ever wonder that? Couldn't he have made it a little bit clearer for us? <laughs> right? Sometimes Jesus, just tell us straight out what you mean. Does it have something to do with the ability for the subject matter to span across time and cultures? As you ponder why he taught in parables, look at 11 and 12. Jesus explained. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, talking to the disciples, those in the kingdom. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, here's the reason, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Jesus taught in parables to reveal truth about the kingdom of God in such a way that those in the kingdom might gain understanding and faith direction, but those on the outside would never get beyond the temporary meaning. So your first question that I encourage you to ask is to ask Jesus, what does this mean? Help me gain understanding. And I want to encourage you, if you ask that question to Jesus regularly throughout your week, it's going to indicate something about you, right? First of all, it demonstrates a desire to go beyond process into understanding. I don't know about you, but there's some times where I sit down and I read. I can read a whole paragraph or a page, but it doesn't have, my mind is not fully committed to that. I'm not fully engaged. And I can say, well, what in the world did I just actually read, right? Especially when you're doing academic reading in textbooks or, or something that's a little bit more challenging. Parables can be that way. What did I actually read? Help me understand. This demonstrates a desire to go beyond just the process. If every one of you read your Bible every day this year and you're, you're like, I have to get up and read my Bible, but every day you walked away with no understanding, what good would that be? Other than to say, I read my Bible every day. Now, we don't read just to read. We read to gain understanding so that we can know God better. We can know his ways and we can follow him and represent him, right? Secondly, this indicates humility. If we say, Jesus, I just don't understand. Help me learn this. No matter what age we, age we are, this is a good question to ask. But it also takes courage. It might take courage to say amongst others, I really don't understand that. Can you help me understand? Before becoming a pastor, I would teach mathematics. And sometimes mathematics didn't always come across clearly to my students, and maybe it was the way I communicated, I would say something like this. Listen, it's pretty simple. The sum of the squares of the legs of the right triangle is equal to the square of hypotenuse. You understand it? Some do. You might understand this. It's like this. The legs are A and B, and the hypotenuse is C. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. This is called the Pythagorean theorem, right? I can explain it clearly. I can demonstrate it. I can walk in, and there will still be some that say, If you don't ask a question, I won't know if you don't understand. Asking a question takes humility and courage, but it also demonstrates faith. It demonstrates faith 
and us looking to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I believe you are the word of God who was from the beginning, came to earth, took on flesh. You know the Father. Everything that you taught us came from the Father through you. You can teach me. It demonstrates faith in going to him and asking. and also demonstrates faith in believing that Jesus is willing to help. As you seek for understanding Jesus' parables, here's a couple hints. In the book, Grasping God's Word by Duvall and Hayes, they suggest two principles for interpreting Jesus' parables. All right, two things. First, look for a main point for each main character or group of characters. Look for the main point. As you read the parable of the soils, what's the point? What's the point about these different types of soils? And which one do I want to attain to be, right? Do I want to be the path, the rocky place, the thorn, or do I want to be the good soil, right? And what should it look like then? What should it look like if I'm the good soil and the seed of the word is cast into me? What will it look like in my life? This is what we do. Look for a main point for each main character, if there's characters or group of things. Secondly, the main points you discover must be ones that Jesus' original audience would have understood. What this means is because the, the, the parable can be a little bit vague and we have to work for meaning, we can't make it mean something here 2,000 years displaced from the original telling that it never would have meant for them. We can't read our meaning into the, the text. This is called eisegesis. We want to practice exegesis, getting from the text what it meant to the original audience, and then making the correct application in our current culture. We can't just read anything that we want to into the parables. Those two steps, use those to help in gaining your understanding, but ask the question, Jesus, what does this mean? Now, you might be thinking, that'd be great if Jesus was hanging out in my living room where I did my Bible study, right? Right? It might be great if Jesus was walking with me as I, as I did my stuff in my, in my dorm room or in my, in, my, in my car as I'm riding to work and I'm listening to the word. But remember, in John 14, 26, Jesus made this promise. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So yes, we have access to Jesus through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And you don't have to call upon him waiting for an appointment. You can go whenever you need to go for understanding. Okay? First question. Jesus, what does this mean? What is this understanding? On our way to Mark 9, I want you to look, just stop and pause at Mark 7 real quick. Flip over to Mark 9, but pause at Mark 7. Verse 18. It's a, it's a rhetorical question Jesus asked to his disciples who asked him another question about explaining something that he taught. In verse 718, Jesus said to his disciples who asked him to ask for help and understanding, he says, disciples, are you so dull? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, sometimes we are, right? And Jesus says, come on, stay with me here. We got work to do and I've got a purpose for you. You got to get your mind engaged in this, right? I'll help you. I'll answer your questions. But come on. So there's an implication here from Jesus that we are to be learning. We are to be figuring out how to understand his teachings as we go through it and do it. Okay, that was just a side note. Mark 9 for our second text and second question. The question is, Jesus, what are we missing? And the context for this question comes out of a story where um, a man who had a son that, that was possessed by an evil spirit 
Okay, it's, it's kind of hard for us to think about this uh, in, in our culture, but in some cultures around the world, it's, we, we identify it a little bit easier than here, perhaps. Uh, but an evil spirit was in the sun, and it would cause the sun to be deaf and mute, and even uh, at times almost throw the sun into a fire. The dad brought the son to the disciples and said, can you help me? And the disciples tried to, but they couldn't heal the child. So the man then goes to Jesus and approaches Jesus and asks Jesus to, to heal the child. At verse 25, when Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him back to his feet, and he stood up. Praise the name of Jesus. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, again, in the privacy of the small group setting, why couldn't we drive it out? So they were asking him, what, what did we miss? What we didn't do? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Why couldn't we drive it out? What was the error? They were curious to know what they were missing in their ministry to this possessed son and his father. Failure can be a great teacher. Disappointment or the possibility of failure can stifle our faith activity. We can fail and we say, I'm never trying that again. <laughs> I was unsuccessful. But it can also lead to faith growing to new levels and seeing Jesus work in amazing ways. There was a season where I was a coach in athletics, in high school athletics, and track and field in particular, where I would see fear of risk playing out in my athletes. I would see them train hard. I would see their potential. And when it came to race time, sometimes they would just not go all out. And I'd say, what's going on? Go for that. And they would say, I, I, don't, I don't care. I'm content where I'm at. I didn't believe them because I had seen them train. I had talked with them. I knew them. And I knew their potential and I knew what they wanted, but they were afraid of the risk of failure. It was safer for them to offer, I don't care, than to commit to going all out regardless of the consequences. One of the things that may be missed in this story that I want to highlight is in Mark 9, 18, where the disciples are present in the story. They brought, the story starts with a father bringing the afflicted son to Jesus' disciples for healing. Even though they were unable to drive out the evil spirit, they were engaging people because Jesus had sent them out and taught them to do this. They were engaging in ministry. They were attracting, hurting, and suffering people because they were engaged in providing healing ministry. They were doing it. They were doing amazing things. Their healing was both physical and spiritual. I want you to contemplate this phrase in your life. The practice of following Jesus encounters situations where the solution or outcome is unknown. 
Your decision to follow Jesus in some certain situations, you're not going to know where it's going to go. If I say, you know what? I don't know how my family is going to react to this. I'm the only believer in my family, and I'm deciding to go after Jesus because it's the truth revealed to me, and God's drawing me. That's an act of faith. You don't know how your family is going to react. This involves stepping into the untested, following Jesus into the unknown. And sometimes things are not going to go as we had planned or wished. Sometimes we have to pause when we realize the outcome is not what we wanted or intended and ask as we seek Jesus, what am I missing? Is there something that I am missing? Notice that the disciples' question came at the result of their failure to drive out the evil spirit. They did not say to the father who brought the son, hold on, this is above my pay grade. <laughs> you need to go right to Jesus for this one. They didn't do that. They attempted but did not succeed. Is there something that we learn from this failure? The story of the disciples' failure and openness to ask why they couldn't drive it out provides an example for us as you face opposition in your life. And as we dare to engage big dreams for sharing Jesus' love in our community and around the world, sometimes we're going to have to ask, oh, I'm, uh, what am I missing, Lord? <laughs> it didn't go quite, I was unsuccessful. There's an element of belief and faith in this story. Did you catch it? I didn't read it to you, but Jesus com com commented when the disciples were unable to drive it out. He says, oh, unbelieving generation. And to the dad, and also when the dad was attempting to maintain faith that his son could be healed, the dad said, but if you can, would you heal my son? He said this to Jesus. And Jesus said to the dad, if you can, do you know who I am? And then Jesus says to this, everything is possible for him who believes. This passage of scripture is meant to build faith and to generate hope. I felt the need to say a few more things about the situation, even when things don't go our way. The enemy can spread seeds of doubt in families who pray earnestly over their sick family member, doing everything they know possible, asking for healing and restoration only to see the sick loved ones pass away. The enemy sees a vulnerable spot and can sow doubt with questions like, did you really pray? Did you really, do you really believe? The passage is not for us to question our faith, but to help us realize that there is an opposition to the kingdom of God. The passage is not there to humiliate the disciples, but rather to magnify Jesus. Jesus' response to the disciples' private questioning is one which points us to the power source for our faith. Jesus teaches us, as he said, this kind can only come out by prayer. And some manuscripts add, and fasting, prayer and fastings. Sometimes God's will for us or someone in our lives is not the same as our desire. And the answers to our fervent prayers are no. But like the disciples asking, what did we miss, Lord? We too can review a certain ministry or an event where the results were not what we hoped for. Prayer was Jesus' response. So I ask you this morning to consider 
your prayer life as a disciple of Jesus, is it missing? When you ask Jesus, why does this not happen? Or why does this always happen? Why don't my kids, why is my marriage, why were we unable to do this? Let's make sure that we bathe those situations in prayer. Okay? So the first question, Jesus, help me understand what you're teaching me. Second, is a question of humility saying, Jesus, what did I miss? Third, is the question, Jesus, what should we do with this cultural practice? Turn to Mark 10, verses 2 to 12. I'll read the whole text for you for this one. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Jesus replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Teaching concluded. Walk away from the event. Verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. We didn't understand. We need to know more. What do you mean about this at the beginning? Is it a, what are you trying to teach us, Jesus? He answered them, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This question, what shall we do with this cultural practice, certainly applies to us today, right? Are there things in our culture which don't line up with God's will? And we have to say, how do we react to this? What do we do with this practice? There's all sorts of things, right? You've read the Bible, and you go to family reunions. You watch the news. You look in the paper. You know what's going on in your neighborhood. There are some things that people do, even within the church, that don't line up with God's will. The Pharisees, they were experts in the law. They were testing Jesus with such a question about marriage. My hunch is they were more concerned with smearing Jesus and his ability to correctly interpret the law and diminish his authority and character than really wanting to know how better to act with their wives or encourage those in their region to treat their wives or their husbands. The question of asking Jesus to help us respond to our culture is a conversation that the church today needs. We need to wrestle with this question in the church so that we can share clarity into our culture where there's ambiguity. So we can provide hope and light when deception and darkness attempt to rob joy. So again, we see in verse 10, the disciples asking Jesus in private to speak into his response regarding marriage and divorce. Look at verse 3. What did Jesus do? When we are countering questions that deal with cultural issues, what did Jesus do? The first thing he did was... Ask another question. Well, what did Moses command you to do? Right? He's referring to Scripture. Moses lived and wrote over a thousand years before Jesus. 
Is that right? If you point to someone to the writings of the Bible to help understand and clarify what's going on in culture today, you are simply following the example of Jesus. Fundamentally, Jesus explains that permission to a divorce was not God's intention to be accompanied with the covenant of marriage. It was only given, as verse 4 explains, due to the hardness of man's heart. I want to state right now that God can work through divorce, allowing forgiveness, allowing grace and mercy to transform one's heart and to begin things that are new and beautiful. Jesus was dealing with something way bigger than the Pharisees' trap, but with a cultural issue that continues to plague marriages. What we see is Jesus doing is taking the Pharisees' question, which is narrow-minded. It was a simple pinhole they were looking through. And Jesus takes that hole and he peels it back and gives us a glance at things in this world that is much wider and gives us a view of the Father's plan to bless humanity with marriage. Look at verse 6. He says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus connects the creation of humanity with the beginning of time. In verse 6, also in a definitive way, answering a question about marriage. This paragraph, this teaching from Jesus is about marriage. He says, marriage in the beginning God made them male and female. Male and female are the components necessary for marriage as defined by God. And verse 7, because of this God's unique and distinctive creation of the male body and the female body, which is the only way in which natural procreation can occur, the institution of marriage is given. You see... Their little question is being spread wide open. And Jesus says, let me just tell you about God's plan for you and marriage. He continues in verse 8. He says, in the beauty of marriage, two become one. Two individual thought processes, desires, two beings fade away and become one. Each sacrificing for the building up of the other. Having hearts that are given to the other to hold and to care for. And in verse 9, he says, uh, he says this is meant to be together. What God has joined together, a covenant that God sees and puts his blessing on, let man not separate. Let me, let me, this man, not work against what God wants to build as oneness in my relationship when my selfish desires come against that oneship and I only think about me. Let you and I, men, not work against the oneship that God wants with us in our marriage by saying, I'm selfish and I want what I want and domineer over our wives. And wives, the same thing is for you. To work towards oneness. So that God's power and his beauty and creative work in marriage can flourish. During my pre-counseling sessions, I instruct those who are considering marriage with verse 9. I say, marriage is God's, and those who enter it should not do so on a whim, because what God has joined together, let man not separate. So the disciples had their eyes opened and asked Jesus to explain more. Here is the result of divorce and remarriage. He says in 11 and 12, 
a man who divorces his wife or a wife who divorces her husband and then remarries, commits adultery against her or him. Now, this is not the only time Jesus spoke about this topic. The sin that's addressed here is one called adultery. And if you think that you're not prone to be adulterous, you just need to go look at Matthew 5.32, where Jesus says, hey, listen, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, or women, you look with men with lust in your eyes, you're committing adultery. And he also includes a line in that paragraph. He says, except for marital unfaithfulness, which broadens the conversation about marriage and divorce. We're not necessarily looking at this today to preach on the topic of marriage and divorce and adultery. But we're looking at Jesus' teaching to help us with the question, Jesus, what do we do with cultural issues that come our way? This is the question we're asking. We looked at Jesus' response. So here's some things for you to think about and glean as we entertain that question as discipleship. First of all, what did Jesus do? He looked and referred us to say, what does the whole Bible teach about this topic? That's the first thing he did in verse 3. What did Moses command you? What does the Bible say? What has God revealed to you about it? This, this leans into the authority of Scripture. Secondly, we have to ask, well, let's look at the places where Jesus talked about this, either directly or indirectly, and, and pull these together so that we can understand. The third thing is, what decisions regarding this matter, this cultural issue, display a heart that seeks to bring glory to God? What would be the position of someone who seeks to bring glory to God in this position, rather than glory to self? And then finally, what decisions regarding this matter allow God's grace and mercy to be applied to soften the heart? Dealing with cultural issues that can be so divisive and hard. Dealing with people that you love and care for. It's not a simple answer. So we don't want to forget question number one and question number two. Question number one is, Lord Jesus, help us to understand and two, what are we missing? Let's make sure we pray as we encounter these things. Three questions today. Jesus, help me to understand. It's a great, great question for you as a disciple to Father Jesus. Secondly, when things don't go quite well in your life, and it's not playing out the way you want it to, and even before that, if you just want to inspect and say, Jesus, what am I missing? It's a great question. And then finally, as we try to attempt to engage the world with life and truth, and Jesus, we ask, Jesus, how do I deal with this cultural issue? This week, I encourage you to think about those three quick questions. Quick is relative, right? My hunch is that if you take one of those quick questions and you ask it to Jesus, what happens as a result, if you truly meant that, will be something that's much broader and deeper and longer lasting than a quick question. I invite you to, to, to consider that this week. I want to invite you next week. We're going to look at another question of the disciples based upon Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24. And he told them about Jerusalem and every stone that you see here is going to be moved and, and knocked down. 
And they asked a question about Jesus' second coming and at the end of the age. Please prepare for next week by reading through Matthew 24. Thank you for being here today, Brother Sam.